I'm Dan Walters. And I'm Anthony Peters. This is the No Ideas Podcast. Welcome back to the No Ideas Podcast. This is the first of two USA episodes that we've recorded over in Portland, Oregon. That's right. We're um, currently sitting in an Airbnb in the suburbs. I'm living out my Steven Spielberg dreams, uh, <laughs> looking out the window at a leafy, beautiful green suburb with like weatherboard, clapperboard houses. Gorgeous. It's nice, isn't it? We haven't seen any eagles or anything yet. But... No, it's, yeah, it's kind of perfect. Sun's coming in the window. Um, we are here to interview Lisa Congdon and Aaron Draplin, two people that have been on our list since the very beginning. And we were going to be out here um, earlier this year in July but we couldn't make it happen so when Dan was out here for work we totally took advantage of that and I flew out and we managed to make it happen. Yeah, it all came together didn't it and uh, both of them kind of said yes straight away and were so warm and fitting us into their busy schedules. I mean we're still absolutely buzzing. Yeah, this, is the mor- this is the morning after. We're Just the most wild <laughs> incredible day we had yeah. yesterday the first time we've recorded two in one day um so it was pretty exhausting wasn't it like just the sort of talking for that amount of time but, but i barely slept last night because we were so, so yeah it was incredible um so this this one is with lisa lisa congdon yeah uh we got up in the morning we got a hire car went over to the studio and as always we were super early yeah, so we found a little coffee spot, didn't we? Dawn yeah, Patrol. Dawn Patrol. <laughs> which is pretty good. Um, and we sat there, went through our notes. A little bit nervous, because it's been a little yeah, while. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then when we rocked up to her studio, in this amazing kind of industrial area, yeah, all we these were like, creative companies, um, we just got into the door of her beautiful studio, and it was just like, we were at ease straight yeah, away. Yeah. She was really lovely. Yeah, so she works in a studio with her, uh, a kind of shop that's open a couple of days a week um, at the front with all her products and a huge, amazing mural on the wall. Um, and she kind of works out the back there. Beautiful roof light. The light in there was incredible, wasn't it? The sun yeah. started to kind of get me towards the end of the interview. Yeah, but, um, thankfully it was a bit overcast to start with. Yeah. In the back, loads of her paintings, yeah. loads of her work around prints, lots of trinkets. It was amazing. And there was a beautiful, huge painting, wasn't there, on the wall that, she, that took her maybe six months? Yeah. That she I've seen on her Instagram feed. Um, and we spoke to her a little bit before we started recording about that. Um, and she said that she's been offered money for it and now she can't let go of it because she's fallen in love with it too, too much. much part of her studio it is so beautiful it is seeing it in the flesh is yeah. amazing yeah yeah so we sat down we got the kit together um started to record and then what unfolded was utterly unexpected mm. there were tales of love and being reunited with people she's not seen Incredible, for a long yeah. time i mean we had chills and tears it was <laughs> genuinely <laughs> yeah, really totally. a stunningly beautiful it was interview. emotional it was beautiful um and she was so kind and generous with her time yeah. as well, which she has been her whole life. She talked about being a teacher, yeah. which she still is in many respects. And she'd got back from vacation like the night before and we kind of sent over a question, hadn't she? And she was, she'd yeah. been talking about that with her partner and yeah, to fit us in, you know, to the two hours that we got with her was, yeah, it was so generous of her. So, so what you're about to hear is the, that interview, I mean, we hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as we yeah, enjoy it. It's amazing. So. So enjoy the show. <laughs> so 
Our guest today is an artist, illustrator, author and educator. Her work is colourful, emotional, honest and promotes positivity and change. She's worked with MoMA, Chronicle Books and Harvard University to name a few and she runs her own studio in Portland, Oregon. She's also inspired a whole new generation of creatives with her talks and advice. But what we're really here to see is her collections of matchboxes and erasers. Uh, welcome to the show, Lisa Congdon. Thank you. You're in the wrong studio, though. Wow. I have a studio at home, and <laughs> that's, where, that. that's where all my erasures are. <laughs> so we just have to look on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. just have to keep fawning <laughs> yeah. over. I'm really lucky. I have a small studio at home, and that's where I keep all my tchotchkes. Oh. But you're, a lot of people come here to this bigger studio, um, and I have a open hours because I have a shop in the front, and that's one of the questions I get frequently. Can oh, I see your eraser collection? <laughs> <laughs> We may, maybe need to make an appointment. I know. Come back. Um, do you, did you, uh, do you have many erasers? How many erasers do you have? You know, I don't, I think I have, I don't have probably much more than a hundred. Oh, okay. You know, it's not like I have thousands. It's just that the ones I have are mostly with the exception of some pink pearls, which are very common in the United States. Um, I have everything I have is different from the, you know, the others. Mm. And so, and I've collected erasers from all over the world. And so some I've bought on the internet and some I've found when I've traveled and I go to flea markets and stuff and dig through boxes. So, you know, I haven't counted, but I don't even think it, yeah, it's much more than a hundred, okay. but it's like the ones I have are very beautiful and distinct. So it kind of makes it seem like I have a bigger collection than I actually do. <laughs> And when I photograph them, I repurpose the same ones in different arrangements and okay. stuff too. So, yeah, it's I do have an enormous collection of like office supplies and school supplies <laughs> and sewing supplies and things like that. That that's in the multi hundreds of things. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. We're, we're <laughs> stationary fetishists. I'm yeah. Not sure yeah. That's the same. A, that's a thing. But yeah, so we can totally appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. We've had a good time already here, haven't we? Yeah. Like kind of finding stuff. Yes. I've been, I've been digging around. <laughs> <laughs> so did you collect anything as a child? Yes. I mean, I, I like to say that my taste evolved, but I've always been a collector. Like, I think it's sort of a gene that I maybe was born with. Because I know other people who have this urge to amass, you know, collections of similar things that fit into a similar category um when i was little it was more like typical things from the 70s which is when i was a kid um like little glass figurines or ceramic figurines animals and such um and i in particular collected all things sea otter oh wow okay Okay. (laughs) yeah so I think when I was really little, we went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and Monterey Bay is in California, and there's a really well-known yeah, aquarium there. there. Yes, and um, you can see sea otters there, and they are so cute. <laughs> and I think I just fell in love. They hold hands and stuff, don't yes, they? Yes, yes, they're really adorable, <laughs> and they have yeah. So I, I think I that collection started around that around the time I was like eight or nine or so. Um, I also collected, um, (laughs) well, I had a doll collection, which a lot of little girls have for sure. Um, the funny, the weirdest one. So I have a cousin who's eight years older than I am. And she, when I was, um, little, 
and she was like um, in her late teens, maybe 19 or 20, she became like a professional clown. And wow. she would like go to hospitals and visit old people. And she's a really beautiful human being. And, you know, she has done lots of different things with her life. But one of, you know, she's always sort of giving of herself. And um, I looked up to her so much and I sort of became obsessed with clowns because my cousin <laughs> dressed up as a clown. Wow. And so I started collecting clown things and I wrote um, a report in seventh grade um, about clowns. And it's so weird and creepy to think about now because I have zero interest in clowns. <laughs> but um, yeah, so 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 some 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 rather strange collections and then when i was in high school um oh gosh there's a there's a comic strip or cartoon um that had a um penguin in it called opus um and it i think it was um uh i can't remember the title of the the cartoon but i was really into it and the and i started collecting penguins because the main character was a penguin (laughs) and i like was in a skiing accident when i was 17 and i um and i was in the hospital for over a week and people were bringing me because that's my was my penguin face so i got a lot of penguin (laughs) gifts yeah also very bizarre um and then i I think I, by the time I went away to college, I probably got rid of a lot of those oh, things. Oh, man, I was, that was my next question, yeah. whether yeah. any of them still exist. Well, I think I might have a handful of things oh, wow. um, in my, like, boxes of childhood things. Beautiful. And then, when I was in my early 20s, um, I got into my first serious relationship, and it was with a woman who um, was an avid, also an avid collector, also right. had a collector gene. And then we started filling our house with all kinds of crazy, <laughs> that are more sort of in line with, okay. she was a designer and an artist. And so she had much more refined taste than <laughs> sea otters and penguins. And um, so we started collecting lots of old things, um, particularly from the mid-century. And I got really into ephemera and things. And that's basically how I started a lot of the collections that I have today was um, like 30 years ago. Wow, okay. Yeah. So um, just to go back to childhood, can you tell us a little bit about um, your family life and growing up in upstate New York and then Northern California? Yeah, so I was born in um, a, a city in upstate New York called Schenectady, which is like a, a na- Native American word. Um, and uh, I have a mom and a dad. They're still alive and they are still married. Amazing. <laughs> in you know, U.S. culture is weird because so many people get married and divorced sometimes multiple times here um and i have a brother who's two years older than i am and a sister who is two years younger and um my mom has always been uh very artistic she didn't really start selling her work until i left home she works mostly in textiles so our work is very different um but i grew up in a home where creativity was embraced not necessarily as a career path but i don't think i think that's because it was at the time there was it was very hard to make a living as mm-hmm. an artist compared to today mm-hmm. where we have the internet and all these opportunities now exist um so none of us pursued it until later in life because um, both of my siblings have creative careers as well oh, okay yeah my dad is a nuclear physicist amazing wow. okay he's basically a rocket scientist <laughs> and he's retired but um he's his PhD in nuclear physics. 
Um, which is interesting because right now I'm writing and illustrating a book, which my sister is actually my editorial assistant on, um, about the periodic table of elements. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, um, can you recite it? No, (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you about various elements, but, um, and I, and it was the first time I ever wrote a book about something that I didn't know very much Uh about, but that my dad knows a lot about, um, he seems pretty disinterested in, in, <laughs> in the fact that we're making this book. It's a kid's book. But anyway, um, yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs, in um, first in upstate New York. And then when I was uh, eight, in 1976, my father got a job in California. And so my whole family moved to from one side of the country to the other. Wow. And um, according to my mother, I don't have any memory of this, I was despondent um, because I didn't want to leave my school, right. I didn't want to leave my friends. And But the minute I set foot in California, I never looked back. Apparently <laughs> I was like, this is the coolest place I've ever been. Sunshine, swimming pools, you know, palm trees. <laughs> so um, I fell in love and um, yeah, so I was, I'd, most of my upbringing was in Northern California. Amazing. Yeah. Were you close with your folks and your siblings? Yes. I mean, we're a pretty close-knit family. I, I, my sister lives here in Portland, so I see her all the time and talk to her. She, she works for me part-time. Um, and um, she has two teenage kids who, are, who I've, you know, sort of been, had, had a really great relationship with since they were younger um, and an awesome husband. Um, my brother lives in, still lives in the Bay Area in California, Amazing. and so I don't see him as often. Um, but I adore him and love to visit when we when we have time. And he has he's married to a much younger woman, so he has two little kids. Uh, okay. Yeah, and um, so I have a niece and nephew who are really little. And then my parents live here in Portland, which is kind of how I ended up here. My sister moved oh, okay. here first. Okay. Um, she's been here almost twenty years. My parents moved here maybe. Well, my niece is 19. They moved here when she was five. So, you know, they've been here almost 15 years. They basically retired here um, to be closer to the grandkids because at the time my brother and I didn't have any children Mm -hmm. and they wanted to be active grandparents. And then we moved here like four and a half years ago. And I don't think my brother and his wife will ever move here because she has a a career in the Bay Area that that is thriving. So, yeah. Um, you talk about your mum quite a lot, actually, yeah. in posts. Can you just talk to us a little bit about your mum yeah. and the, the fact that you shared a studio with her and yeah. stuff like that? So my mom, um, she's really, uh, um, she's a character. Um, well, she just turned 80 last year, so she's about to turn 81 this fall. And um, she, while she has a few health problems, she's her mind is extremely sharp and she's, I sort of get my like, um, how do I describe it? So if you know me, you know that I am uh, um, not averse to risk. So I'll try things even if I don't know what I'm doing. And um, I get that from my mother, you know, it was like something would be broken in the house or some piece of, you know, something would need to be fixed and she would just try to figure it out and do it herself. And there isn't a lot of, um, my mom's also not a perfectionist. And that's part of, I think I get that from her. Like, we are really interested in, um, like, creating things and making things and doing things and keeping our minds busy. And I think that's, a lot of people have the urge to do that, but they're very much held back by, like, well, what if this doesn't Mm -hmm. work out? Or what if I don't know what I'm doing? 
we don't care. <laughs> I think that's really inspiring. Yeah. I think that's super yeah, totally. inspiring because yeah. you're right, lots of people are too scared to have a go at some yeah, things. Yeah. Because they especially with drawing initially, when yeah. kids draw and it doesn't look like how they wanted it to look in their minds, they screw it up and throw it away. And I'm always trying to teach my kids just to to learn from those mistakes and grow on and grow yeah. on from them and don't scribble it out because you'll come back and you'll look at it and you'll see the part of the journey that that represents so I find that I've, I read that the other day and I found that really inspiring this yeah. idea that you don't have to strive for perfection that just the act of doing the thing has an amazing value yeah yeah and my mom really taught me that like she modeled it it wasn't even like she sat me down and said you know this is how to live your life but she she really sort of modeled for me this like attitude of you know not having shame or embarrassment about about going for something and still to this day this is how she lives her life like she's 82 she's never or i'm sorry she's about to turn 81 she's never um really been an artist in the traditional sense of drawing or whatever but she's i think it's been almost a year she's been doing this project where she draws something every day and you know she's her eyesight's going she might even have some form of macular degeneration but like every day she draws something and posts it on her instagram incredible yeah and um and she just wants to keep her mind active and she was really ill a few weeks ago um and she still continued to post <laughs> draw things and post them every That's day amazing. yeah she's she's pretty incredible um and a really b- amazing role model in my life for risk taking and like um um i don't know just using your creative energy you know in a way so it doesn't get bottled up when you were growing up did your parents have any passions kind of outside their jobs you know my mom in particular sort of like um she was always making things and always creative like um made our clothes made a lot of this stuff in our house we had a big giant german loom in my house when i was growing up and wow (laughs) she would teach herself things all the time um, so yeah, my mom had all kinds of like creative, um, passions and she can do just about anything from knitting to crochet to, you know, s- she now is like an art quilter, which means she makes these sort of abstract quilts and does beadwork and all kinds of stuff on them. Um, my dad, you know, it's interesting. He, my dad has always been a voracious reader. Um, which is another thing that my brother and sister and I have all sort of adopted. Um, we all love to read. And um, uh, I would say, like, my dad still to this day, he probably reads at least a book a week, wow, if okay. not more. That's amazing. Um, he does it now on his Kindle. And um, if you ever want to know what to get dad for <laughs> any gift, just get him a, a Kindle gift certificate or buy him a book for his Kindle. Um, and... You know, he also, my both my parents are very engaged in what's going on in the world. Okay. Um, they have very progressive politics. So fortunately, there's not a lot of, you know, a, like tension where there is, I think, generationally, a lot of people's yeah. parents are more conservative than, than them mm. or haven't been. And my parents are um, really amazing and they're very engaged in what's happening in the world and like my mom and dad came to the women's march with us the first one here and my dad held signs that i made and they're both um i think have a lot of and have always been very passionate about you know what's happening in the world um and to see them get into their 80s and maintain that passion um is also really inspiring like they're very in they're not checked out Mm. at all for being older yeah i think it's awesome i think kids they don't learn from what you tell them they learn from watching their parents that's right 
and it seems like you're still you mm-hmm. you will always be learning yeah. from them and it's amazing <laughs> yeah because they're giving you the blueprint for how to to move into old age and still be like totally tuned in and, yeah. and totally kind they sound very kind yes. and they sound very like, like they've got a lot of empathy as well yeah, it's, yeah. They sound amazing oh, can we follow your mum on instagram <laughs> <You can. laughs> she also takes really blurry pictures sometimes Love because it. her eyesight's not very good in fact if she ever listens to this that she might be a little embarrassed but um my friend my best friend and i like sometimes take screenshots of my mom's instagram posts because the photos are often really bad <laughs> um but it's really adorable because how many people's 81 year old mothers are like taking pictures and posting them on instagram right (laughs) so i kind of love it um but yeah she's she's funny someday i want to make a book of all of her instagram posts it's pretty humorous (laughs) i am i tend to get chills a lot don't i when people talk about things that move me i just got chills (laughs) it always always has to happen Um, (laughs) that's amazing i mean Matisse's favorite, my favorite period of Matisse yeah. is when his hands weren't working very yeah. well and he couldn't, and his eyesight yeah. had gone. And that's his paper cuts. And I find those to be yeah. more like more important than the whole of his body of work, yeah. really. Yeah. So it's that perspective that you still have as you're growing through life to have people that are sharing that perspective is really important. Well, my mom draws portraits as part of her project every now and again. She'll, you know, mostly it's objects, whatever's sitting around her is her daily thing. And like, but every now and again, she'll do a human portrait, and they're like phenomenal in that sort of naive way mm-hmm. that you know people mm. who don't aren't technically trained draw, but that works. You know, yeah. so my sister and I will often take screenshots of my mom's portraits and say like, if mom's gonna pursue anything, it needs to be portraits Amazing. because they're just like perfectly wonky. <laughs> yeah, That's I love a great that description. I like that because <laughs> sometimes when you love a drawing what you're actually loving is how technically brilliant it is not how much soul it has as a drawing and so i think when something's kind of wonky i think it has more soul in it yeah it's it's more immediate well it's funny because i i teach some online classes about drawing and and i talk a lot about and this is what i how i'm self-taught so i really had to do this myself consciously but like I say like embrace the imperfections, embrace the wonkiness because it's what's going to make your work look interesting mm. and different. If you're trying to achieve perfection, it's to me it's not as interesting. Um, I mean, there are ways that people who draw perfectly and can render things perfectly um, make their work interesting for sure. Um, but there is something about things being off that makes them mm. beautiful mm. or more beautiful, right? What kind of childhood adventures did you have? kind of like camping or family holidays yeah so um another great thing about my childhood was that my parents um actively you know tried to get us out into the world i didn't go to like travel anywhere like you're out of the country until i was in my late teens i went to europe with my parents um but we were always exploring things like in the united states we have these national parks Mm. that are really incredible because the landscape here is so diverse across the country and there's all of these areas that are preserved and um so we would when i moved to california it really that really exploded for the and i was eight my sister was six and my brother was 10 so we were at that age where we really could like kind of dig into going on these road trips and going camping so we went to um the sierra nevadas a lot which is a um, a huge um, national forest in the middle of California. Um, 
one of the coolest places we ever went was Lassen National Park, which is a big volcano. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I, for years, I wish I still had the sweatshirt I bought. Like, it was in that perfect, like, <laughs> 70s. It might even be in Helvetica, but it's that I climbed a volcano. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And, in fact, I mean, my parents tell stories of taking us hiking from the time we were really little. And apparently one time, I was probably about five or six, maybe even younger, um, not quite light enough for my dad to carry me the whole way, but I guess I guess I was getting blisters, and um, I was like my feet hurt too much. But there we had to like keep hiking or get back to where we were. It's not like we could just make it stop. So I had to keep going. So and maybe my dad was already carrying my sister. I don't know. So I decided to take my shoes off, and I apparently hiked miles without shoes. Wow, <laughs> amazing! And um, was completely fine with it. Um, and my parents also tell stories about like my brother and I in particular getting way ahead of everyone on the trail and them being kind of a little scared because <laughs> we were out of sight. Um, but yes, lots of outdoor adventures, um, lots of even as a, as a high schooler, I went backpacking several days, backpacking excursions. Um, yeah, so lots, lots of really just uh, lots of outdoor things. My parents don't get outdoors as much anymore because they're older and it's mm-hmm. like harder on their bodies, but that was a huge part of my life growing up. And both my brother and sister and I, um, all three of us, we um, are really into being in the outdoors. And I think, again, that's something that my parents modeled for us. You live in a perfect yeah. place for it. Yes. That's incredible. yes. I mean, the, this whole coast is probably the one I most want to explore yeah. in the world. Yeah. All the way up and down the, the yeah. Pacific west coast highway oh, yeah, i want to the, do that at some the, point the coast with all of its sort of like rocky mm. i mean it's it is um the west coast of the united states is just spectacular you have everything in the yeah. united states you know every type of landscape yeah. from mountains you can go skiing you can go yeah. to a desert you can yeah. have beautiful coasts yeah. i mean it's an incredible yeah, place it really is um so what is your earliest creative memory um you know, I don't know. I like I was saying earlier, my mom was this really creative person who was always well maybe I didn't say this, but she was always inventing experiences for us. So like from um one of the things she used to do was like she would give us a bowl with like food water and food coloring and cheerios and like we would just like make the cheerios cheerios cereal um different colors and like we were always had set up to do art at the kitchen table um so i don't know that i necessarily can remember my first creative experience i just wrote a book on finding your artistic voice and i i talk about the moment where you get turned on to creativity as like the spark and for me the spark didn't happen until i was much older okay um like the oh not not only do I love this, but I want to do this all the time. Um, it was just part of my childhood, you know. And in fact, I probably was more typical of the average person in thinking that I wasn't very creative okay. or artistic. I didn't embrace that part of myself until I was much older. Um, my sister and brother were always sort of pegged as and described as the more artistic <laughs> ones than I was. You know, they were like tested for the gate gifted and talented program at school and I wasn't like so I think in some ways it's surprising that I've ended up having this like 
um, very sort of fruitful art career <laughs> and that I'm so prolific mm. artistically because as a kid, I was not like that. I was probably more likely outside playing uh, okay. um, uh, soccer or, um, you know, or just playing dolls with my friends or whatever. Mm. I was not necessarily the kid who was like holed up in her room, like drawing. That was my sister. Oh, okay. Who's also really talented. She just never pursued it as her like full-time career although she has done incredible creative projects over her lifetime so um what were you like at school then i mean it sounds <laughs> goody two-shoes because that's what i was going to say because it sounds like maybe when you were younger you didn't have the confidence to be creative or you didn't have the self-belief yeah like it wasn't part of the you know it's like every kid grows up with this mythology about themselves that's sort of reinforced by family and friends and then like self-reinforced like who you are and i call it a mythology because it's never entirely accurate mm -hmm. right but that you know the myth of, of who you are and it has all these components and creativity and art you know being an artistic person was not part of my mythology um and so you know in school i definitely um i wanted to please the teacher for sure um and you know i was a good kid i never got in trouble I think once I got sent to the principal's office. <laughs> you remember um, why? I don't even remember uh, why. Okay. It was probably that I got in an argument with somebody about okay. something. But um, and I was it was before I moved to California, so I was probably in first or second grade. Um, but yeah, and, and I never took an art class in high school. Wow. Okay. Um, I I was I, I've always sort of like I remember once, and maybe this is really my first memory of like the like being engaged in a creative project that that was felt very self-motivated and also like satisfying when i was in probably i was in junior high I remember that it was probably seventh or eighth grade so you know 12 13 i got an assignment to make a pretend like newspaper page about someone famous and i think i chose mozart and so I drew his portrait and then I like wrote this whole report on him on a piece of construction paper. And I, I pr invented this like hand lettering script to make it look like it was from like the, whenever he lived in the 1600s or whatever. <laughs> and um, I still have it somewhere. Wow. And, um, and I remember being so obsessed with making this thing look cool. And, um, <laughs> You know, it was essentially it was like a graphic design assignment. Yeah. You know, and an illustration assignment, and I just was so absorbed in it. And I think oftentimes those things happen, and then kids say, "Oh, I want to do more of this," so they go do it on their own, or a teacher encourages them to do more of it. And for me, those moments were more isolated when I was a kid, for whatever reason. So it wasn't until like. On in you you know have no desire yeah to to, like it. I, it wasn't like i went home and said i want to make a million more of these and a lot of kids do that i think i either had too many other interests and things to do or i still didn't have the confidence and so but when i was older i started discovering like you know that sort of you know doing you know oh i love doing this so i want to do more of it mm -hmm. you know that didn't happen until i was much older were there any influ influential teachers at school that you remember? Yeah, you know, I loved all of my teachers. And in fact, um, I, when I was in 
maybe in my 20s i even found a couple of them and like wrote them emails and stuff beautiful (laughs) um and ironically i was a teacher and i am now in touch with many of my former students and they found me in a similar way and so that was really sort of um kind of full circle gratifying um but i had um i had I do remember my kindergarten teacher. Her name was Mrs. Lambert, and she was like the quintessential kindergarten teacher. And this was in like 1973, probably, so um, a long time ago. And we were still reading Dick and Jane, which is like the the primer books here that are like really. <laughs> we had Peter and Jane, wasn't it? Yeah, so, maybe yeah. it's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. The They're like these perfect-looking white yeah, kids. That's who right. Live this that's right. Life and yeah, never thought about it. Like yeah. That. Um, so. She was just so kind, and I still remember, I remember all of my teachers, and I remember also this teacher I had, um, my first grade teacher, um, Mrs. George, um, and when I was much older and we moved to California, she had moved to California, and we, like, went to visit her. Um, I had one teacher in particular who was, like, my favorite, and her name was Mrs. McDonough, and I had her for both fourth and fifth grade. Like, she, I taught, she taught, was my teacher for two years. And um, she was, part of the reason that I loved her so much is that she was, she thought she could see something in me, right? Like I look back now and I see that. So one time I was learning long division and um, I was never, I never felt like I was good at math. Um, And which was weird because my dad is a mathematician, basically. (laughs) Um, I think it was very frustrating for him all the way through school because I struggled a lot. with math and science and ironically now I'm making a science book but uh, anyway she one day I could I couldn't figure it out I couldn't figure out long division so she called my mom and asked her if she could keep me after school and she made me sit there until I like finished the whole workshop worksheet and got everything correct and while I, I was probably crying and like frustrated at the time I did it and she gave me the biggest hug and like showered me with so much love. Um, and like, I think she probably even gave me a big smooch on the cheek. And I just, she was one of those teachers who pushed me to, to understand that I could do things um, that I didn't think I could do. And um, I remember once I, um, you know, I like, I was, having to write a report or something and same thing like she gave me a lot of hard feedback and made me turn in a second draft and um and i it made me value that kind of learning experience and i think really prepared me you know for high school and college where that's it's more normal to be pushed and not just like turn something in and have it be what it is and she she really sort of like i think challenged all of us to do better and to break through like whatever insecurities we had about what we were good at and that's what I remember the most about her yeah do you, do you think you obviously have a lot of fondness for all of these teachers yeah. do you think they inspired you to want to be a teacher oh yeah for sure I remember I graduated from college and I didn't know what I wanted to do so it's not like I was one of those people who set out and said I'm I'm going to be a teacher when I grow up I didn't really ever had well, when I was little, I really wanted to be an archaeologist, which if you think about it, <laughs> it makes perfect sense, right? Because we, you know, we like things and yeah, we discovering things. We're um, social ar- yeah. archaeologists, really, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. And so that doesn't, you know, that sort of was my like fantasy career when I was little. 
But um, I graduated from college and I got a job like as a receptionist at a law firm and I was miserable and I thought, I really got to figure this out. What do I, and I had a liberal arts education, so I didn't have any sort of specialty. And uh, so I went back to school to become a teacher. And I think part of the reason I made the decision to do that is it sounded fun, you know, ended up being really hard (laughs) to the point where I only lasted seven years. But yeah, it was, you know, that was like, I think I was really inspired by all of these women in particular. I had one male teacher when I was in sixth grade who was really into science and the outdoors (laughs) and everything. Mr. Newcomb, he was also phenomenal. Um, And, uh, you know, I was really lucky that I had this like, experience with all these adults that was super positive because not everybody's school experience is positive you're still a teacher though aren't you really in a way yeah i I teach lots of classes Mm. and and you share knowledge you don't keep hold that keep it to yourself well even when i left teaching i went to work at a nonprofit organization who worked with teachers who taught in public schools so part of my work was like working with teachers like teaching teachers so i was doing a lot of workshops for for adults and so I learned a lot about like how to relay information and how to make things clear and how to help people learn I think a lot of people who teach don't understand pedagogy like how to teach and um, they only know their subject matter but Mm. they don't necessarily understand how people learn so I had the blessing of learning a lot of that in addition to you know learning how to be an artist so it's like one of those things that I'm able to teach other people what did you teach Um, when I was a teacher I taught elementary school so mostly first grade to third grade was my span yeah our sponsor for the first of our two special american episodes is dot to dot printing a giclee and art printer that both dan and myself use to do all of our art prints amazing quality great paper stocks and swift delivery they also offer automatic integration with online shop platforms including etsy Shopify and WooCommerce and can fulfill your orders from the moment they're ordered until the moment they get delivered to your happy customer. Go to dot2dotprinting.co.uk and quote the code no ideas you get 10% off your first order. Now back to the show. So in 1990 you moved to San Francisco mm-hmm. is that right? Um, can you tell us how this changed your life? Well I actually wrote about this in the introduction to my latest book um, because it's really all about sort of, you know, it's about finding your 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 creative voice. And um, I had sort of previously been one of those people who, um, you know, I, I described myself earlier as a goody two shoes. Somebody wanted to please the teacher, right? Like I was like the good girl, and my whole identity was around being a good girl. And a lot of that was just basically conforming. And moving to San Francisco really it just sort of like opened my view of what it meant to be a human being right because I'd always sort of even in college I went to college in a suburban town um I hadn't previously not been exposed to very much art or culture or diversity um sexual orientation you know like none of you know my world was very sort of um one note and I moved to San Francisco and like literally, ex- like my mind exploded. <laughs> um, the very first day I was there, um, I moved in with this, into the apartment with this woman who um, was a friend of a friend. I didn't know her from Adam, we're still friends today. Mm. Um, she's a phenomenal person, um, but she was like a high school friend of a college friend of mine and she had a room in her apartment and so our mutual friend said you should move in with her and I did. and. 
um, very first morning I woke up, she said, okay, here's what we're gonna do today. It was the weekend. And uh, so we went, drove across the Golden Gate Bridge and hiked up to the top of the Marin Headlands. Have you ever been there? I have. Um, I normally stay out there. When I travel out there, I stay over in like Marin County. Yeah, like, yeah. it's just stunning. Um, yeah, amazing. And I probably had driven by there with my parents on one of our outdoor outings, but like she packed like French bread and like a wheel of cheese. And <laughs> and I just felt like such an adult, you know, like we hiked up there and I, there was a couple other friends with us that were friends of hers. And we sat and watched, you know, the fog kind of sitting on top of the bay and the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was windy. And I just remember being so happy. Get back and to the apartment. She said, okay, now change your clothes. Let's go to the movies. So we went to, to this, I'd never been to anything but like a giant modern cineplex before. And San Francisco has lots of old theaters mm. that have been around since, you know, the 20s or 30s or whatever. So we went to this place, which actually sadly no longer exists because oh, no. a lot of them can't make it. We went to this place called the Bridge Theater, um, which is out in the Richmond district of San Francisco, and we saw Cinema Paradiso. Okay. And I had never seen a foreign film before. So I was watching a film with subtitles for the first time that took place in Europe. And again, just like sat there like, oh my God, I this is amazing. I feel, <laughs> you know, and it was just sort of like this really, um, like I can still feel and taste amazing. like that day wow. of my life. Like, oh, this is what it, like I was just exposed to these things. And then, you know, I had been to Europe and I had, you know, I'd seen things and been inspired by things. And, but for the most part, my regular everyday existence was pretty boring until that point. And then, you know, I started a job and like met, you know, gay people for the first time, which was really important because I knew deep down inside that I was mm. also gay and I didn't know any gay people. Um, that changed very quickly because <laughs> you can't live in San Francisco and not yeah, yeah. and not meet other gay people um, very quickly. And I just. Uh, you know, I, within a year, I decided to go back and get my teaching credential. And then I was like, also interacting with people from all different cultures and um, ethnicities. And my world became so much richer. Um, I started, within, within a few years, I started dating this woman who was an artist and a, and a designer and hugely influential in my life. I was with her for a good seven or eight years. And she introduced me to the world of art and design. And I still talk about this sometimes when I give public talks. In fact, she was in the audience for one of those talks wow. and had no idea that a picture of her was going to be in the <laughs> wow. slides. But um, yeah, like I just, my whole world blew up and um, became so much richer. And, you know, I didn't even start making art until I was in my early 30s. But like my entire 20s was just filled with sort of like taking it all in and being part and I became sort of more interested in politics and more interested in in all kinds of things music and um so the San Francisco was like and, and this was in the 90s and San Francisco is very different now because it's very wealthy and there's like a lot of tech okay. money there but in the 90s it was this kind of still relatively affordable place yeah. with like really um you know, interesting people doing really innovative things and um, artists and musicians, you know. Um, and so it was like a really inspiring place to be at that time in history. And 
I have no doubt that, you know, like I sort of became an artist in San Francisco and I, I'm not sure that would have happened if I had lived mm. somewhere else, maybe wow. New York or something, but yeah. So, so, so that was, yeah. That's the long That's answer to that, that one, question. Uh, <laughs> one that one show day. Like, oh, good, you got chills. Great. Um, just the I remember going to bed that night being the- like, oh my God, like, you know the euphoria you feel when you fall, like you meet someone, you get a Absolutely. crush on them mm, and yeah. like, you're like, that's how I felt about San Francisco. Like going to bed that night, I felt like. It can fill a room. Yeah, can't yeah. It? You lay on your bed yeah. and it feels like. I was like, this emanating. is my life now. And yeah. I had no job yet. I didn't really have any friends. You know, I had a few friends that had also moved there from college, but they weren't like, you know, I don't know. It was just like, this is my life now. And. I always do wow. this. I make things into movies in my mind. Yeah. I imagine the camera looking yeah. down, you lie in bed with a yeah. huge grin yeah. on your face. As yeah. Maybe a street light coming in the window. <laughs> or, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, you, so you mentioned um, that you started drawing and painting in your early thirties. Mm-hmm. What was it that prompted this? Yeah. So the relationship I was just talking about okay. ended, and I was, I ended the relationship, and it needed to end. So it wasn't necessarily that I was sad about that. It was just that that was all I had known in my twenties. You know, I'd been in this same relationship since I was probably twenty four, twenty. Yeah. Um, and I also went from working um, as a teacher where I had like my daily life was like being creative because I had to make things interesting for little kids Mm. um, to, um, you know, working in an office. So my relationship ended. So I was single for the first time in my adult life for at least since I had lived in San Francisco because I met her pretty early on. Um, And then... I was also, you know, not, you know, I had a career change and I felt and I got really depressed and anxious and I felt lost and totally ungrounded. And one of the things that I started to do during that time was I started taking art classes. And in fact, one of them I took with my brother who was living in San Francisco at the time. And he had actually just gone through a divorce. He got married really young and um, he's now remarried, but he, he was single also for the first time we both were. And he's like, I have to take this this elective class for the landscape. My brother's a landscaper for this landscaping program that I'm going through. And it's a painting class. It's on Friday night. Will you take it with me? And I think I was more excited that my brother actually wanted to hang out with me than, <laughs> than I was about taking a painting class. But like we took this class together and we sat in the back and we had so much fun. And the teacher was this character, like this painting teacher was great. I ended up taking more classes with him. Okay. I, I adored him. I have another story about him for later. But <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, yeah, we just uh, had, a, and my brother I don't think ever picked up a paintbrush again. You know, for him, it was like fulfilling the school requirement, although he's he draws all the time because he makes landscaping plans. But, you know, and then I just sort of like fell into painting. Um, Yeah. So it really came about as like, I think, a way to fill space. Um, um, And also when a couple of years later, um, I went to therapy for the first time. Well, not actually for the first time, but therapy was somebody who was really effective for the first time. And um, I think that previous to that I while I was living in the city and like uh, seeing all of these people doing really amazing things with their lives and um, you know there's a sense of free-spiritedness that exists in in San Francisco I wasn't necessarily living that way myself at the time and um, never imagined that I could like be the artist or an artist and she really sort of helped me reshape my 
my my thinking about what was possible for me it's in my life myth, you know again, that you talked about when you were a child the myth yeah that you told yeah just yeah that. exactly and that i actually had agency and that i actually had choices and i actually could pursue things even though they weren't part of my mythology and um she was really incredible i also talk about her frequently in <laughs> in, in in talks but um yeah so i um yeah i that's sort of how it all began. I, and then when I was seeing her, um, I just dove even further into creativity and making. Um, and similar to my former painting teacher, I had a recent encounter with her, like after not talking to her for like, you know, I stopped going to therapy at some point. Hmm. And um, she saw my name on the website of this um, organization that was hosting a talk where I was interviewing the very well-known author, Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, on stage in front of like 2,000 people. And uh, <laughs> she was like, wait, Lisa? Like didn't even know that I had become a professional artist wow. and like thinker of, of creativity. And I was interviewing Liz who's written, you know, wrote Big Magic and many other books and including Eat, Pray, Love, which is probably her most her most famous. And, and she wrote to me and was like, hello, do you remember me? And I was like, do I remember you? <laughs> yes. And um, so we had a, a really lovely exchange and I was able to tell her that all of the things that I learned from her and that she pushed me to sort of unravel um, made me, you know, help make me the person that I was. Um, That's beautiful. And, uh, and so I got to like thank her. Um, I probably could have Googled her and found her. You know, I think I was a little, I get really nervous about mm -hmm. doing that kind of thing for whatever reason. And um, so we got to have this exchange, which was really lovely. Um, and uh, I think she was going to be traveling and couldn't come that night to hear me, you know, interview um, Liz. But yeah, that was like this kind of really amazing kind of full circle moment. Your story's kind of littered with moments where people's lives have touched each other's lives. And then there's been this sort of circular, like revisiting yes. these people or almost like happenstance sometimes as well it's quite beautiful how many people have touched each other's lives in your story really well it just happened to me this two days ago again so when i was in my 20s my partner at the time had a roommate who dated this woman who was like much we were all around the same age but she was much older she's 20 years older than i was and i thought she was the coolest most bohemian uh just the coolest woman ever and at the time I was probably 26 and she was 46 and we used to hang out. We kind of, our birthdays are a day apart and we just ha formed this very special friendship. Her name's Park. Well, her name's Nancy, but she goes by Park. <laughs> and lots of things happened years later. My partner and I broke up. She had since broken up with my partner's roommate. Our whole, fr lots of things happened in our friend group and the whole friend group sort of dissipated. I, ne I never saw her again. And I was in Santa Fe um, last week and I was at a bar and in she walked. And, um, <laughs> I, and it was a small, very intimate bar in a, in a kind of fancy restaurant. So, so there was, and, she, and the reason I knew it was her immediately is because the bar, she's a regular there and the bartender said, oh, Park, you're gonna be sitting over here tonight because it's one of those bars where you have to reserve a seat. And I grabbed my friend Patrick's knee, who was sitting next to me, and I, he could feel me trembling, and I said, a very important person from my past just walked uh. in here. And he's like, is this, is this good or bad? Because I think he couldn't tell if I was like, needed to leave or, and um, I stood up and walked over to her, 
And um, I said, I don't know if you remember me. And she immediately like got wispy <laughs> and like, so we ended up spending the next, you know, 45 minutes to an hour um, talking and catching up. And I said, I'm a fairly well-known artist now. And she said, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but she had no idea. Like anybody who knew me 20 years ago, I, I wasn't even making art or barely, you know. And uh, so she, so we got to reconnect. And as it turns out, she's a, like a life coach now. She still works, she's 71. And she, she works with artists and she's gonna start a residency. She's moved to Santa Fe, so she lives oh, there now. And um, I'm gonna see back. her again in January. And it was this beautiful, like we were each other's sort of favorite, you know, one of, and then it just, one of those situations where we just lost touch. Mm. and. You know, back in the day, there was no texting, there was no Facebook, there wasn't ways to stay in touch with people like there are now. And so it's, it was so much more common to just lose touch with people. Yeah. And uh, what, what's great about how we, we got reconnected is it has nothing to do with the internet. Amazing, you know? yeah. And uh, so, um, and she was such an influence on me. And, uh, and so, and I got to tell her that, you know, and now I get to like be, re in fact, I just wrote her an email this morning, I got to be reconnected <laughs> with her, but yeah, this just keeps, these things keep happening and You're it's really cool. You're obviously doing good things in the world and connecting with people in a positive way for that to come back to you because it would be the worst thing in the world for people to see you and then leave or, yeah. <laughs> you know, it means you've, you, all of your ripples have been positive ripples. Yeah. It's interesting that she saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself, the fact she wasn't surprised that oh, you're yeah. an artist now. Well, I remember that I was like dabbling in trying to like paint and draw because, partly because I like, that's sort of what she did. She was this really, you know, one of those people you'd walk into her house and it was just, everything was like perfectly appointed, but not in, in the traditional way. She was just, she had an eye. And, um, and I just wanted that. You know, and I think eventually I achieved it. But she was like one of those people that, you know, that I encountered in my early years in San Francisco that was like, you are like living your life to the fullest. And she used to always talk about how she couldn't stand it when people like were self-deprecating, that she really just wanted people to be them full, their full selves. And we talk about that all the time now in our culture. But like 20 years ago, nobody was talking mm. about that. And she was this woman who was talking about it to me, you know, someone besides my therapist. And anyway. So you often talk about Carita Kent being a major mm. influence and mm -hmm. your work definitely has parallels with her work. What do you love about Carita? Um, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. I there is a sort sort of like a rawness to her work that is um, like a she's obviously was a very skilled artist, but there was sort of there's sort of there is a sort of naivety to her work, like because she's you know she's sort of developed her own style um, in a way, um, and you know part of also she she was a nun mm -hmm. right, and so. She was a nun in the best way, right? Like super interested in protecting vulnerable people Absolutely. and speaking out about injustices yeah. in the world. And that, you know, most artists, there are a lot of artists who do that in their work, right? But that the way they do it is very subtle. Um, and then there's artists who do it in a very blatant way. And she was sort of very blatant about it, but, but made it very accessible for mm -hmm. people. Um, and also her medium, which was mostly screen printing, oh, was yeah. you know um, so um, new and fresh at the time. Um, and I love the limited color palettes and the sort of layers in her work. Um, and 
Yeah, she's she's pretty incredible. So another weird thing that just happened is um, the Corita Kent Center, which is in Los Angeles, there's a new executive director and they're building a new museum. And um, it's been housed in Immaculate Conception, um, the high school there, which is where she taught. Mm-hmm. And, like it doesn't take up very much space and um, she's become sort of very popular lately, her Absolutely. work. And they really want to like expose people to more people to her work so they're getting funding they're doing fundraising and getting funding to build a like a small museum of her work and they've asked me to be on the advisory board which is also a huge honor for me um and we haven't started work on it yet but but that was like when the executive director asked me to get on the phone i was like what does she want from me and then i was like oh (laughs) she wants something really awesome you know so i I caught her show when it came uh to it came to ditchling museum near us Mm. and also in london i've been a fan for a few years and she's she was screen printing at the, she started when it was high technology at the same time mm-hmm. as Warhol was doing it on the other mm-hmm. coast but while he was concerned with uh, consumerism she was so open and so political and also mm-hmm. she was a teacher as yeah, well which yeah. is amazing um, do you think she would have been on Instagram oh yes absolutely because <laughs> she used to take her students out with yeah. a tiny little square aperture and make them look mm-hmm. at advertising and the world around so she would love to Instagram yeah 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 I think so that's what we're doing with phones. That's exactly the same thing we're looking at. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess, and that's the great thing, is everybody's getting their experience of the yeah. world out. I mean, so many sunsets on there that you can become blasé about it, but it shows you what the universal things that we all love are. Sunsets, mm. beaches, nature, a lot of food, and then a lot of selfies, mm-hmm. which makes me feel a little bit sad. But mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so we, we talked a little bit earlier about your collections. Um, can you tell us what your favorite item is, is and have you got any stories about finding oh, gosh. some of the items? You know, um, one of the collections that we don't talk about, that I don't talk about publicly or photograph very much because it's bigger, is this collection I have. So for your listeners, for people who don't know my work, like a lot of what I collect is like small things like erasers, old school supplies, um, and then I arrange them by color sometimes or um, in weird you know, in ways that where lots of similar things together or whatever, and then I photograph them. So I paint, I paint and I draw, but I also t- take these photographs. And um, so a lot of people know me for collecting these small things. And of course I like have a million small erasers and things that I love and have, um, you know, oh, the cleaners are here. Can you hear that? <laughs> um, that's what's going on in the background in case anyone can hear. There's a vacuum room. Somebody's vacuuming. Um, and, uh, but one of the things that I, one of my very f- first collections that's not like small objects is um, I collect vintage um, enamel wear from the mid-century. Oh, wow. Mostly okay. um, Catherine Holm, which is from Norway. And um, I started collecting that because I was I, I was in a relationship with somebody who was really into mid-century design uh, the woman I was talking about earlier and and she sort of introduced me to that aesthetic and we were collecting furniture and things but one time I was in a in a antique mall and I saw a Catherine home bowl and it was a lotus pattern which is her stuff is very graphic but like it was like a, a green bowl that had these leaf pattern around the edges and um <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm la- we're laughing because because they're vacuum. Um, and so I bought it, and then I kept seeing it. 
it's way less common now because it's become very popular. Right. But this was back in the in the 90s. And so then I started buying it wherever I went. And I would specifically look for it under the a certain... Same. The same... Not the same bowl, but like she made it's a, a billion different yeah. things with this pattern. Oh, okay. And it's very iconic. And so I started collecting bowls and pitchers and all this enamel wear from the collection that... And then I started collecting da- older Dansk, which is a Danish enamel wear, and uh, Arabia, which is also, uh, which is from Finland. So there's different, um, mostly Scandinavian, the, some Japanese. Yeah. So I started collecting that. So one time, so my wife, my now wife and I were um, uh, going garage sailing in San Francisco one day when we, we had only been together, I think literally like five weeks or something. We didn't know each other very well. And I do remember we were like walking down Dolores street, like holding hands as, as you do when you're in, in the first, you know, <laughs> first few years of your relationship. And, um, we were sort of going from garage sale to garage sale and it was a beautiful summer day. And, um, sure enough, I see down the hill, this, Catherine Holm bowl in a color I didn't have and I let go of her hand and I ran down the hill and it was filled with like costume jewelry okay and she was using it the woman as a like repository for the for this what she was selling at her garage sale and I said can I buy the bowl and she's like um sure and I said how much and she's like a dollar <laughs> and, um, but anyways, Clay, my wife, always tells the story of, you know, of like me sort of like being like, you know, catch up with me later and like me letting go of her hand and running down the hill because I saw something that I had to have and I need to get it before anyone else got it, you know. And uh, so it's like one of the best pieces in my collection because it's blue and her blue stuff is rare. Um, and it's, you know. And I got it for a dollar. Another great one was like I was visiting a friend of mine in Wisconsin. She used to own a gallery there, and I had a show there, so I stayed with her for the opening. And um, she served me breakfast in this like um, small red Catherine Home bowl, and I also didn't have any red Catherine Home bowls. And I was like, Oh my god, Faith! Oh my gosh! You know, like what? This is so beautiful. And she's like, I have a whole set of them. And um, I was like, I can't. You know, I use mine too. Um, yeah. They're pretty sturdy, so. I have some older ones that don't leave the shelf, but you know, she was using them as everyday dishes and, and she's like, yeah, I got in, got them at a garage sale, blah, blah, blah. So later that afternoon, I'm packing up to leave to go to the airport. And she hands me the stack of red Catherine. Uh-huh. Cause she's like, these are make, you know, more exciting than I have so many stories of finding it in weird places. That's the, um, the for super part, cheap. Yeah. Finding, yeah. Isn't it? We People were are like, do you, do you go on eBay? And I'm like, no, I've never bought a piece of Catherine Hall on, on eBay. Like my collecting rule is with some exceptions is I have to be, I have to see it in person and like mm-hmm. find it. Um, and Cause so, that's the thing. It's that interaction. It's the hunt. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And getting it, you know, and like, I won't buy things, you know, I'll, sometimes I buy things that are like, I pay too much for something because it's something that I really want and it's needs to be part of my collection. But most of the time I just like finding things in the kind of hard old fashioned way. I, um, it's only things that I couldn't ever possibly find that I look at on eBay. And recently I've become obsessed with looking at, um, you know, like ladies head vases from like oh, yeah. the 50s and yeah. early 60s. And they're just amazing. Yeah. Some of them are really creepy. Yeah. But amazing. Yeah. I genuinely would. I mean, they're all 
you have to import them all from the US. They don't seem to be in Europe. But I genuinely would fill a whole room with yeah, them. It would yeah. probably creep my kids <laughs> out. Yeah, I know, I know. so stunning. Yeah, I collect all kinds of things that people don't really see. Like, I'm obsessed with tigers, and I have, you know, tiger tattoo, and I paint tigers all the time, and I have a collection of tigers from all over the world. So everywhere I go, including, like, in Santa Fe this week, I didn't find one tiger because it's not a common symbol mm-hmm. in, like, Native because there's no tigers in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, but if you go to Japan or Africa, they're everywhere, right? Um um, so I have tigers and a collection of tigers and certain kinds of pottery and yeah, it's um, collecting is uh, you have to. I mean, if you have a limited amount of space, you really have to sort of contain you know yeah. contain it and like that's what makes getting having rules about how you acquire things more important because when you do get them, it's rarer because you're doing it like the hard way. Mm-hmm. So it makes it more satisfying. In some interviews, you've talked about love and you've said it's the most important thing in life. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it's one of the videos that I, I watched. It's a, maybe from 2013. Um, what does love mean to you? Well, one of the things I discovered as I've gotten older is that you can't actually really truly like be love in the world unless you love yourself first. Okay. And it sounds very contrite and like, oh, isn't that sweet? But I, it's true. Like if ultimately love is manipulation can like what we what we call love is is oftentimes manipulation or other things like and i think love in its sort of purest form can only come from people who um who are comfortable in their own skin and i'm not saying if you're not comfortable in your own skin you're not capable of loving i just think it's a lot harder and so there's a lot of you know i think especially for women we we are sort of raised to hate ourselves and to think that there's something wrong with us. I mean, I think that's true writ large for human beings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like deep down inside, we're all terrified that that you know there's something wrong with us or that we're flawed in some way. Um, and one of the things that I learned is that like, yeah, we're all flawed, Absolutely. but that's actually what makes us beautiful and interesting. Um, <laughs> um, and so, I don't know, I that realization for me, which I kind of, figured out in my 40s um, that like it was actually the stuff that I hated the most about myself, which is that, you know, what made me the most human. And that if I got comfortable sharing that part of myself with other people, like my insecurities or like if I if I had some level of humility that, that was healthy versus like self-loathing, mm-hmm. hum, you know, um, that I actually could be a more openly loving person toward, toward others. And um, and so I get a lot of love back. Like I, I have a store in Portland that's in front of my studio and it's open two afternoons a week and people come in here and just tell me they love me. I mean, not, not <laughs> like I love you, but like you've changed my life or I love your work or I think you're amazing. And it's so overwhelming for me sometimes that I have to like, um, you know, I'm Brene Brown, who's a researcher and writer about shame. She talks a lot about how like, in vulnerability, um, that that joy is like the most vulnerable um, feeling. It's the thing that yeah. we're the most afraid of yeah. because we're afraid it's gonna end and that um, we don't wanna be caught unprepared for the joy stopping. And um, sometimes I feel so much joy when you know people come in here and I get to interact with people who like are consumers of my work or my ideas or like, never bought something from me, but like, you know, I've influ- been influenced by th- my work in some way. And uh, 
and I feel so much joy because we get these interactions and I get hugs and and I'm like um I'm so full at the end of the day mm-hmm. that part of me just wants to like go have a drink mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't handle the joy that it gives me right um but I'm really trying to force myself to just like be with it and uh um, like accept other people's love. So love is important to give, but it's also really important to like to take from other people um, because then it fills you up to then mm. give more, right? Like, um, so, you know, we want to convince ourselves like, oh, this isn't really real or um, someday this is all going to come crashing down. And I just try to remind myself that like, this is my experience right now in, in the world is that I have this like, unique opportunity to interact with people around my art and my words and um yeah someday it might go away for whatever reason but uh right now it's real and i'm gonna like just be in it and um even though it sometimes that feels really hard mm. oddly people fantasize about you know about having a sort of magical life in some way and I would describe my life as sort of magical, and I don't mean that in a in a way to brag, yeah. like that my life is any mm. more special than anybody else's. That's not what I mean at all. But that like I get to give and receive a lot Absolutely. of like joy and happiness and love, and um, and I um, and and it's amazing, but it's also sometimes really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you, you have a voice that's a very emotionally honest voice, and so there's a sort of responsibility with that, mm-hmm. but. But you're not being dishonest with what you share with people. You're sharing things from your right, heart. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with what the idea of love has been in the West for the last hundred years. And so your answer is like absolutely amazing. It's Because I think we've been sold this Hollywood love. We were sold this 1950s love. It's almost like a repopulation after mm-hmm. the Second World War. It's like a teenage sweetheart mm-hmm. kind of love. But that's not, to me, what love actually is. It's It's something deeper than that that you can't put into a pop song. That's right. And so the idea that it stretches beyond just relationships or romantic love, that it's something bigger that we sort of share and that it's, there's a responsibility in that. And also accepting love is a big thing. My wife taught me a long time ago with compliments as well that I get awkward with compliments. So I sort of rebuff them. Yes. And she just said, sometimes just accept it and say thank you. And that's almost what you're saying as yes. well, isn't it? It's that when that's taking the love, instead of bouncing it back because you're uncomfortable with it, like taking it in. And I think, that, yeah, I mean, so it being a more broad thing yeah. I think that's the truth yeah. of it I mean conversely I have haters <laughs> um, and you know and they're for whatever reason and then I think anybody who has sort of like a large social media following or whatever mm. or, you know has people who 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 are distrustful of them or don't like them or whatever and that's also something that I've had to sort of like work through and not let bother me you know and understand that that's just part of life mm. is that you can't make everyone happy you can't please everyone. You can't be everything to everyone. And in fact, you wouldn't want to be. No. You'd and be very bland. It would you? be very bland. And so just sort of like accepting duality in life. Like my mom used to always describe me as a very black and white person when I was younger. Like I either loved something or hated something. I either, you know, uh, you know. And now I'm like so much more comfortable. And I think that's one of the gifts of age with like, of, I'm so much more comfortable with gray. And like not being sure about something or not knowing whether somebody likes me or not, or, you know, it's all okay. And, um, and that the, 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 the light side and the dark side of things is actually kind of important, you know? So. I hope my daughter listens to this. (laughs) How old is she? She's 13. Uh. So she's at a really awkward stage. 
she wants everyone to like her, which is exactly how I was at that age. I didn't get over that until I was about 42. Mm. So <laughs> hopefully, she'll, hopefully she'll, she'll figure that out sooner. Um, so you recently mentioned on Instagram that you were unfollowed by somebody who mm-hmm. direct messaged you um, who disagreed with your politics. Um, would this kind of thing deter you from posting about political issues in the future? No, and I hope that what I wrote when I posted well, we about read that... Well, we reread it last oh, time. And it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which is why we wanted to ask yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so um, yeah, so just to tell a little bit more about the story. So I got a... I woke up a couple of weeks ago and I... Uh, there was a... I, tr- I check all my direct messages. Um, I don't always have time to write everybody back because I get a lot of them. And um, so this woman was basically saying was... You know, I'm going to summarize, but it was very unbecoming of me to to talk about white supremacy because, um, you know, while she agreed with you know most of my politics, she thought that was like that I was fear mongering and you know, um, there were lots of other things she said. But I, I was so taken aback that somebody would think it important to provide me this feedback, um, and so I I just was very matter of fact and I wrote her back and I said um you know I use my platform to talk about things that I think are important to me and I think white supremacy this was right after the one of the shootings Mm -hmm. in in El Paso Texas um to talk about the reality of white supremacy as a problem not just in the United States but in the world absolutely it's a big problem in the UK it's a big Mm. problem in Australia and across Europe across Europe yeah um that we need to be talking about this and we need to call it what it is. And we can't, you know, and so she wrote back and said, well, that I should just go back. She's going to unfollow me because she's going to get her politics elsewhere. She likes my art, but she's going to get her politics Mm. elsewhere and I can go back into my own echo chamber. And I said, you go back into yours. So clearly (laughs) (laughs) you need yours. Um, And, uh, you know, the reality is that, um, that it's, it's one of these, like everyone, I think a lot of people who, who are sort of more progressive, especially white people in the United States who are more liberal, um, will agree that there are many problems. But a lot of white people have um, in this country have a problem talking about racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because it serves them (laughs) that the structure that's been built over the last, you know, however many hundreds of years serves them. Mm -hmm. It serves them well. So it makes them really uncomfortable and they don't want to fight against it even though they might have friends of color or, you know, Jewish friends or other friends who, who are impacted by white supremacy. And I'm not talking necessarily only about extreme white supremacists. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about just everyday people who perpetuate the dominance of white culture. And um, so that's something that I, that I talk about. Yeah. And um, is it uncomfortable to talk about? Of course because it makes other people uncomfortable. And so it's just, a, you know, but I have had to work on getting over that. And so part of what I decided to do that day was to make, to, I kept her anonymous, of course, and my, of course, uh, yeah. my intention was not to shame her, but really to say like, I got this email and if any of you are feeling similarly, mm. here, here's, here's my perspective. Um, I'm not here to keep you comfortable. Um, and I'm not here to, you know, to just post pictures of, you know, pretty things mm-hmm. or talk about politics in a way that is, you know, all about love and acceptance, mm-hmm. which is also important. But mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. we also need to talk about what's wrong. That's what we're trying to get to. That's, a, a that's world right. That's more loving. We and need to be more clear by dealing, with, by dealing yeah. with these things and like calling them what they are. And um, I had no idea 
so I, I, I just used an image that was already in my archives and, and really basically the post was mostly about what I, what I wrote and the, the image didn't even have any words in it. And uh, yeah, it was like the, one of the most um, liked and shared posts that I have ever written and it has something like 2,500 comments, um, which, and I have a lot of followers. So to get a lot of, you know, interaction or whatever on my feed is not totally unusual, but that's, that's like extreme yeah. even for me. Um, and, uh, and I didn't do it so that I could have people tell me I was right. I did it just to let, it was actually more for the people who might be on the fence about yeah. mm. why, about my voice and how I'm ex- using my voice. You're not a robot. You're entitled no, exactly. to your opinion. And, if right? you, and the great thing, as I said in the post is that, you know, the great thing about social media is that you don't have to follow anyone. You know, that woman probably did the right thing by unfollowing me. Like, it made her too uncomfortable. You know, she told me I was preachy. And if, you know, and I said, if that, if talking about issues like this that are real in this world um, and that affect people I love is preachy, then fine. Mm-hmm. Call me that. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I'm going to keep speaking out about stuff that matters to me. I'm also going to s- keep posting pictures of stuff that has nothing to yeah. do with politics. Yeah. I'm I'm a very complex human being like all of you yeah. and I have many interests and things that I care about and I have a sense of humor and I have, you know, passions and I'm going to I'm here to be like myself in the fullest sense. Um and it may piss you off. Um and um but that's that's okay with me. I don't. I think it's not, discussion it's also not is my healthy. problem. Discussion yeah, discussion is really healthy. And I think also showing there's a lot of talk about division. There's a lot of people talking about how we're different, but we're all so much more similar than we are mm-hmm. different. Ninety-five mm-hmm. percent like of our lives, the things we enjoy, the things we do, we're similar. And I think that that's what we need to be sort of working towards. Is instead of people just picking up on the points of difference, is listening to the points of difference, discussing them. But then realizing how similar we all are, how similar our experiences are. There's a really good podcast called um, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Mm. And it's this um, gay filmmaker who gets a lot of abuse online. And what he does, he contacts the people who are abusing him. And he says, can we have a conversation about this? And can we do it on a podcast? He's American. And it's so beautiful because by the end of it, there's there's an affinity with a person who has called him the most awful things mm. in a late night drunken post or a disagreement about police brutality and and that's what I like is he he speaks to a person and they find the common ground and then by the end of it this person's sort of views have sort of melted away and I think I think it's a I don't know I think it's important to not be silenced isn't it really it is um I have a, a some woman that I who's a journalist here in the the United States um, named Sally Cohn and she wrote a book called The Opposite of Hate and it really is all about that this sort of like um, dismantling of these notions we have about each other and seeing us more as human beings and so she's a political commentator often on TV like CNN and so forth and has befriended like people who are on the opposite end of the political spectrum and she's sort of a butch lesbian and like um, is very progressive political views and her wife is you know an activist in the environment environmental world and um you know and yet she is like all about connecting with people and sort of has done similar things where she's like talked to haters about you know why they hate her and like people who troll her on Twitter and stuff and I find that so inspiring I haven't been brave enough to do that yet but maybe someday <laughs> I think that that idea of hurt people hurt people is mm-hmm, so true mm-hmm. I, once I started thinking about it more and more you realize that damaged people they take out their rage on other people who are different from them 
We're having a great time recording the podcast and it's really good to hear that you guys are enjoying it too. So keep on commenting, letting us know that you're enjoying it. Like and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram so you can keep up with what we're doing. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. Now back to the show. Um, so you've mentioned on your Instagram that you kind of knew that you were gay at around 13. Mm-hmm but that you didn't come out until you were 22. Do you think that the era in which you grew up had a part to play in this? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, even the fact that I came out when I was 22 was kind of miraculous because that was only in 1990, you know, so still like not a whole lot had changed from the time I was 13, but my niece, um, who's now 19, came out when she was 13. And it was so... I mean, part of that is that the world has changed, and part of that is how my sister raised her and the environment that, you know, she was raised in. Um, And so it's possible that today I would have come out, it's definitely possible I would have come out younger, not necessarily when I was 13. I still feel like the world is a very um, evil place for 13-year-olds. Have you ever seen that film, um, Eighth Grade? No. Oh, Bo Um, Burnham. I really, really want to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really beautiful. And it's like encapsulates for me what it's like to be a 13 year old girl and, or especially one who's awkward and maybe not popular or whatever, which I was not. And so, um, you know, I was dealing with like the, you know, being in the throes of adolescence, but also questioning my sexuality. And I, I, I tell this story about how I was, an avid reader of Seventeen magazine, which is uh, still exists today, and it was a magazine for teenage girls. And my mom got me a subscription. And there was an article in there that, like, when when girls like girls, it doesn't mean you're gay. You just like girls have crushes on girls, and it's totally normal. Which I also agree <laughs> is true. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, but but that I remember reading that and being like, oh my gosh, what a relief because this is the most horrible thing I could imagine. And it's not that my parents spoke disparagingly about gay people. It was never a topic of discussion in our house even. It was just like culturally, there Mm. was no pictures of gay people. So they're like the, you know, and when you did hear about gay people, it was like, you know, mockingly or whatever. And and I just remember even like, uh, you know, so many like put downs in our, you know, 13 year old vocabulary Mm. are about, you know, being gay or absolutely same same when yeah. I was growing up at school and so I mean I still think that's true but yeah um, I mean, le- lesser I think but at school it was often used to describe people who are um I mean in, bo- in a boy sense less than masculine yeah anybody that wasn't I mean I wasn't masculine I wasn't sporty or anything and it's a word that was really thrown around as an as an abusive term for people who were weak or effeminate yeah. or yeah yeah so I was dealing with that and then dealing with the sort of like this, this knowledge about myself that, that I wasn't comfortable with um, and went all the way through high school and college dating boys and, and everything. And then eventually um, it was something that I couldn't, you know, I was really lucky. I, you know, earlier we were talking about moving to San Francisco and that's one of the beautiful things that happened as a result of making that choice is that within a year I like came out of the closet and maybe it took a little, like a couple of years lo- longer for me to tell my parents, but you know, I started having gay friends and I like started dating and it was normalized for me. Um, it's so much more normal in our cu- culture writ mm. large now. We have, 
you know, one of the most famous beloved people in the United States is Ellen DeGeneres, who is not only openly gay, but like openly non-gender, sort of non-binary, mm-hmm. you know, and um, or not, not not necessarily non-binary, but like, you know, wears suits and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. presents her gender as more ambiguous than, than, than your average woman. So, you know, the, the world is just a really different place. So I, I feel like so many young people have the opportunity to now to like, you know, be themselves in a way that I couldn't have been. Because you mentioned that there were a real lack of role models growing up. And oh yeah, role models. There's no it? conversations. It was such a scary thing, and I think it's still really scary for young people. I do some pro bono work for this camp in the United States called Brave Trails, and it's a leadership camp for LGBTQ youth. And these kids, they're yeah, they're all between say I don't know, they're teenagers to like 23. They're not super young, but they're and they're the camp is really focused on like not just self acceptance, but how can I go out and be a leader in this world and um, as an openly queer person and nothing like that existed Mm. when I was younger, you know, and uh, my friends, kids get to participate in stuff like that now. Um, And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Progress is slow, Mm. but it's steady. Comparative to yes. how, how it was in the 70s <laughs> yeah. and 80s. At I least mean, in American culture and in, I think in a lot of in European culture. I mean, there are a lot of um, countries where, oh. you know, where being gay is so totally shunned that um, it's even full-grown adults can't be openly gay. So That's a long-term mission though, isn't it? Yes. To, for people to be able to be who they are without shame or fear. Yeah. yeah. So um, can you tell us about your new book? Yes, um, it's called Find Your Artistic Voice, The Essential Guide to Working Your Creative Magic. And um, back in, I don't know, three, two, two or three years ago, I wrote a blog. I, I did this survey for some of my, people were like, oh, will you teach more classes? And I said, well, what do you want to learn from me? So I did a survey. And one of the things that was sort of top of the, the survey was, how do you find your style? How do you sort of start to stand out as an artist? Like, how do you find your voice, essentially? And I thought, okay. So I wrote a blog post that was probably maybe 2,000 words, which is, you know, not very long on the topic of artistic voice. And it was very sort of like bullet points. And I don't even remember what it said, to be honest with you. But my editor, I've worked with the same editor at Chronicle Books for a long time. She saw that she saw it and she said, I don't think this is a blog post. I think this is a book. Do you think you have, you know, more to say about this. And I said, well, I'd have to do some research and really like dive more into the topic. But yeah, it's obviously something people want to know more about. It's, you know, as I discovered, the more I talk to people, it's like similar as it was for me. It's this very mysterious thing. Like people ask me all the time, oh, you have a distinct style. And of course, my style is very much influenced by people that have, you know, been part of my path. Um, you know, there, you know, everybody holds up complete uniqueness as like the, the Holy Grail. Right. Mm. And it just doesn't doesn't. exist. Everything's an amalgamation of influence and personal experience. And of course you have to be careful about how you do that. And we all fuck up, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, especially early on in our path, but like, you know, influences is is one of these things that's like very important um, and and also very hard to navigate. Um, You know, people think like it's some sort of magical thing that happens that all of a sudden you wake up one day and you sort of have this fully formed voice. And in reality, it's just like a slow burn of like showing up and practicing whatever it is you do every day 
because if you practice something every day, you can't help but get better at it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the piano or running or, you know, drawing, whatever. Being a lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> um, being a receptionist, like anything, the more you do it, the better you are at it. And um, and I think I wanted to dispel, dispel any sort of um, ideas that, that it was kind of purely magic that some people are born with and talk about anybody can eventually get to this place where they're sort of floating around in their own artistic orbit, you know, and like their work becomes recognizable and their, their thing is their thing. Like we can all get there. It just takes a long time Mm. and it takes some people Mm. longer than others. Um, because we are all made differently and our DNA is different. Um, and I wanted to talk about like all the stuff that gets in the way, like fear and, um, you know, vulnerability and all of that stuff that like is part of create the creative practice, but people think they need to avoid it or that if they're experiencing it, it means something's wrong. Um, and I also wanted to talk about sort of how to get to a fate, you know, get to your voice faster. Um, cause there are actually practical things you can do to develop a style as an artist. And by the way, your voice is, not just your style, it's your, yeah. you know, it's style is an important mm. component of your voice, but your voice is so much more than style. They are, they are not one and the same. Your voice is also your, your life, your experience, everything that's ever happened to you, what you find beautiful in the world, what you find important to talk about, like everything that's part of your past experience comes through in your work in ways that aren't necessarily literal, but, you know, um, embracing those things and using them as your inspiration I think is really important too. So the book is is really all about like what is having what is a voice? Why is it important to have one? Um, and then sort of how do you get there with all of the crazy twists and turns of the creative path? You know, might have been a good book for you to have been given when you were thirteen. Yeah, totally. <laughs> or or even you know when I started my art career in my thirties, or actually I didn't start my art career until I was in my forties, but when I started making art in my thirties. You know, I was really blessed, as I said earlier, with this like kind of like unabashed willingness to try things, even if I don't know what I'm doing. And but not everybody's like that. No. And a lot of people need to be reminded that risk taking and and you know showing up every day for whatever it is that you're passionate about is really important, even if it's going to take you a while to get to that. You know, um, Ira Glass talks about there's this episode of This American Life where he talks about like the the beginner gap, right? Where you start out something and your taste level is like way more advanced than your skills um, or even your ideas. And um, in order to get there, you have to just keep showing up. But most people bail in the beginning because they're so disappointed that they can't do this thing that's in their head Mm -hmm. or that they, or, or it looks like the work they admire of another artist or whatever. And so finding your voice is really about like, plowing through that really uncomfortable period in the beginning where there's this you know gap you have to get through the crap to get to the good stuff that's right that's That's right (laughs) and that's the thing and even with the work i do client work i have to do quite a lot of of crap versions before those ideas start to formulate it's almost like that's part of the workings out well it is and i always i always say like the, the some of the greatest lessons i've learned in my life and in my work are from some of the most horrible feelings of failure mm. you know and what i decided to do what i chose to do with those feelings or what i what i learned from those experiences that that failure and 
and mistakes and um, uh, like, you know, all those failed attempts at things, like they're such an important part of the process. You can actually get good at something without them. So exactly. Mm. And I think most people don't realize that they like show up to try to do something and they're not good at it in two months. They quit. The, Which is also fine. Yeah. But, you know, you might decide you're not into it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, <laughs> um, so right. you've, um, this is your eighth book. Is mm-hmm. right? is, um, do you enjoy the process of writing and illustrating the books? I do. It's my favorite thing. Um, it's become my favorite thing. I'm actually working on two more books right now. They're both right, kids' okay. books. And actually one, three more books. Uh, one is in another adult book. And um, I am going to take a break from making books for the first time. Next year I'm taking a sabbatical and from client work and and work on books and I'm just going to play in this studio um and I I think part of that is that I feel like I need a refresh because I've spent so much of the last um decade working on books sometimes like currently three at one time um and I need a sort of I need a break but only because I love it so much that I just do it all of the time. (laughs) I think you've mentioned that in some of the talks. You've mentioned um, that you've created a work-life balance so that you're not doing this into the evenings and on weekends so that you don't fall out of love with it. Yeah, well, part of... um, I do have a crazy workload, and actually I do need to work this weekend, but mostly (laughs) um, probably because I'm in a deadline period, which typically only happens like once or twice a year I'm in like crunch time it's not constant for me but um, when I'm not in one of those periods where I have like two books due at once um, I I do feel like it's really important to stop working at five o'clock and like have the weekends be completely work free because that's how you re-energize that's Mm. how you get your creative spark back to go back to the studio on Monday morning Um, that's why it's important like I'm so busy right now but I still took a vacation last week it was like an inspiration trip for, for me um, that I took with my friend. And um, in fact, at dinner last night, my wife said, so what are you going to do with all the inspiration you gathered? And I said, I don't know. I don't have time to do anything with it until January. <laughs> I'm still glad I took the trip and I'm going to sock it away. You know, so it's not it's like you can. dormant. Yeah, like, There's it a does. really good book I read about um, ideas, how to come up with ideas. It's written by a, a 50s ad man or something. Mm. It's a tiny little book. And he says, do everything. Go out go to museums, walk in the world, look at trees, and then do nothing. And then your brain finds a way of putting all that information together, and that's when the ideas emerge. It's It's not like you can instantly access it, is it? A couple of the people I interviewed in Find Your Artistic Voice, and I interviewed like 11 people, talk about developing your vocabulary. Like the only way that you can, can sustain an art practice is by continually filling yourself with other things that then flow out of you as you know as art or some form of art or dance or music or whatever and that making time to do that is absolutely essential and for me it's like I'm a cyclist so going on a long road ride on the weekend actually prepare it doesn't take away from my work it adds to it you know not necessarily because I'm gathering inspiration on my bike rides but because I'm getting rest from using my brain mm, in a certain yeah. way it's peaceful time it's yes good. do you and your wife cycle yes we're, we're on a women's team so we go pretty frequently amazing yeah so i believe that each country has its own personality and each city has its own personality like for instance detroit brought out certain types of music because of the industries around it and the characteristics of the place or san francisco has mm-hmm. its own character or manchester in england there's a lot of music that i love came mm-hmm. from there because of the type of city it is 
And what personality do you think Portland has and what effect does it have on creativity? I've only lived here for four and a half years. So I'm st- I feel like I'm still getting to know Portland. But w- one of the things I, I love so much about it here, and it does sort of remind me of San Francisco in the 90s, is this like, it's like a place, it's like an innovation incubator. So whether you are into food and you want to open a food truck or open a restaurant, or you're an artist and you want to try, you know, something or you're an actor and you want to open a small theater or there is so much happening here it's almost overwhelming because it's this place that at least currently is affordable enough I mean that is changing but affordable enough for people who have ideas to go rent a space and do that thing and engage other people in that process um so I'm I feel incredibly grateful to be here because I'm surrounded by not just other artists doing interesting things and starting things, um, but just creative people in general. And I, I know Portland is not the only place in the world that's like that. I think there are a lot of other places that are like that. But um, And there's also enough sort of tourism and money here that kind of gives back to the community. So there's there's enough people here to do those things, but there's also enough people to um to pay for them to to like show up to the small theater that has an improv play or to um or to come into an artist's open studio and buy some work um i feel like there's a a really a fairly healthy cycle of like creativity innovation and economy here Mm -hmm. um i think that could change very easily i think places are um you know studio space is becoming less and less affordable here um so I don't. I mean, I, I by no means want to paint Portland as this sort of perfect place, where that cycle is really is is perfectly healthy. But I do think it's pretty healthy, and we need to work as a community and as a government to make sure it stays that way. That it stays an affordable place and it, it continues to be an incubator for innovation. It's funny you talk about that because I think places like uh, New York in the seventies, and then Berlin in the nineties and early noughties, and even London in the 90s, affordable housing for artists was the only reason that certain communities existed. You know, when you you read about uh, Talking Heads moving to New York or Sonic Youth moving to New York, they lived in loft apartments on like low rent. They often all just lived together. And it was that availability of places and the fact they weren't spending all of their money just on living meant that they could actually be creative and could develop their voice. I think that's really changing here in in, in not not a good way. Um, And a lot of people are working um, in in our local government are working toward toward turning that around. And um, I'm anxious to see where that leads because I'm, I'm super privileged. I like have built this career that sustains itself and I make a really good income and I have a space that I can afford, but you know, that wasn't the case, you know, 10 years Mm. ago. And it's not the case for a lot of people starting out or people who choose to make stuff that you can't monetize in the same way I'm able Mm. to monetize my work. And we need to make sure that those people have opportunities to continue to make work. Um, even if the economy doesn't support it in the same way it supports me, so. So, so we've um, we've talked about all the elements of your job and kind of everything that you do, and you seem to be really amazing at everything. Um, is there anything that you're terrible at? Um, so many things. Hard <laughs> question. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I. I hate um, I hate drawing people, and I 
this is a common thing. You're both nodding your heads. Um, yeah, me we too. talked about this. I actually <laughs> just yeah. had a, took a vacation with my friend Patrick Ruby, who's a, a pretty well-known illustrator in LA, and he and I were just like talking about anytime we get a job or we have to draw people. So, and I can. So I, for a period of time, was making a lot of very realistic portraits of women for different books, and I just kind of I don't do that anymore. But I I was like on this path where like. I was using photo reference basically to, to, to draw people. And I can do that. I have the skills, but I do not like it. And actually, if you take the photo reference away, I'm horrible. So if I'm looking at a picture of a, of mm. a person, um, I can draw something that looks decent. Um, but if you asked me to draw a person right now, it would probably look like a five-year-old drew it. I really have to work hard versus other things like even animals and other, like I've, I can do even a fairly realistic, you know, zebra, but like people are really hard for me. So, and I, and I don't particularly enjoy it either. So I often turn down jobs that have too many people in them because I know I'm going to be stressed out the whole time. That's one of the best experiences we've had. When we first kind of became friends, we, we went away for your birthday, didn't we? Was it your 40th? Oh, yeah, that's right, my 40th. And we brought drawing staff, and we all, uh, over the weekend, we drew each other. Just portraits. And guys who haven't got jobs in cre- the creative industry, their drawings were just amazing, weren't they? Because they were, like, really free. We it had was lovely such, that they felt so comfortable, such a good time. especially people who hadn't drawn since school, and they yeah. were drawing, it was amazing to see their relationship with line or the way yeah it was but the pressure was on us obviously because we're was, both designers yeah. so we were like just well, make this perfect it's so interesting in 2016 i did it was actually going to the national portrait gallery in london oh yeah mm. and i Love which i loved place. and um afterwards i like walked out and i remember thinking you know boom i'm gonna do a project where i draw myself every day for a period of time like i'm gonna do a self-portrait and um, sometimes I allowed myself to look at a photograph of myself, and sometimes I was looking in the mirror, and sometimes I had no. And the difference between <laughs> the ones where I had was able to like be meticulous and use my artistic skill, and where the other, but the ones that are no reference are actually the most interesting and weird. Yeah. Um, and so you know, you're almost drawing a, your idea of yourself rather right. than your actual yeah. That's self. That's right. That's right. Which is really curious. I mean, yeah. if you delve deep into your psyche, there's a reason why. And if you're feeling more confident, you might draw, draw yourself more heroic or something. Mm-hmm. Or if you're not, you might draw yourself more kind of introverted. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. That's yeah. quite a good project, actually, yeah. to yeah. actually draw yourself from memory. It's true. And faces, for me, are easier for whatever reason than body parts. Like, I draw a lot of hands, but none of them very realistically. <laughs> Feet are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're coming to the end we're going to do some quick fire questions okay. they're a lot more silly than, than the questions we've already <laughs> okay. asked you so a little bit of light relief oh yeah so we uh we spoke about this a little bit earlier um but which idea do you wish you thought of well i have to also say that when i you guys emailed me this question ahead of time so that i i wouldn't you know because it's a it's a hard question yeah yeah that's what and we I, did. <laughs> I was filled with anxiety um, for about 20 minutes and I went downstairs my wife was eating her breakfast because I, I got back from vacation and looked at it this morning and I was like there's this question that these guys are interviewing me today want me to answer and I have no and like I said can you help me think of an answer <laughs> and then that sort of like devolved into silliness um, and so then I started to reframe the question for myself which is like what has you know what has so transformed my like art practice recently um 
not that my art my life is completely revolves around my art there's probably many other things in my life that that I could find examples of wishing I had come up with um but the for me this whole idea that um I've been working digitally forever but that there's a pencil that you can draw on a computer with um is to me revolutionizing art um and some would argue in a bad way right we're getting further and further away from like many illustrators for example never use actual paint Mm. on paper and probably there's going to be lectures someday about (laughs) what we're actually experiencing right now but you know the speed with which i can make work and the the amount of um ease that i have now that i can draw digitally specifically with a with a um, a tool that feels like the traditional tool that I grew up using. Um, I always struggled a lot with like working on a Wacom Cintiq. So you're like, you've got the screen here and you've yeah. got the screen here and then your pencil is over here. It's discombobulating. And, yeah. and the pencil is actually not as good as the Apple pencil. And, you know, and so it was just like, I would use it, but I really, you know, and it wasn't until like I got an iPad and I started using Procreate and the, the Apple pencil that like, it just, whoever whoever invented that technology is literally revolutionizing things for for artists and and um you know i i miss i draw more digitally than i do you know work with my hands i'm I'm about to change i'm going to take a sabbatical next year and (laughs) and work on that but um my skills because the more you draw the better you become yes so even in the last two years and i've been a professional artist for a long time you know even in the last two years my skills have evolved more quickly because I can draw more quickly because I which means I can draw more which means I'm getting better faster and um there's that and then the quality of my work is just far superior because if I make a mistake I don't have to start over entirely like I can just undo and you know and I can experiment in ways that felt too risky in terms of time you know when I'm I work on deadlines a lot because I'm an illustrator so it's just like I can't say enough about how digital drawing has revolutionized my, you know, my experience as an artist. That, you know, doesn't mean I still don't want to work with gouache. But I think I think um, it's our generation that feels guilty for leaving those mediums behind. Yeah. I think people who are 13, 14, 15 would draw on an yeah. iPad and they would never... That's right. Kids love drawing on paper yeah. and stuff, but we have this guilt because yeah. we're leaving this physical yeah. world behind. But... I mean, and there yeah. is something about it that is really amazing. Like whenever I do actually use paint, even though it's more difficult, it's also just like there's something about it that, it, that is pretty magical. There's no undo button though. Yeah, the there's no yeah. undo button. If they can make the iPad smell of paint as well, yeah. that'd be yeah, yeah exactly. Get, that'd be um, the next level. Textured screen protectors that yeah. are like paper as yeah. well, which is amazing. So, what was your favorite movie as a kid? Um, as a kid, does um. Well, <laughs> does teenage years count? Yeah, as kid? I, mean, it, yeah. I, the movie that I I was like um, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen when all the Brat Pack movies came okay. out. So I'm the same age as like the Molly Ringwalds and all of that. Yeah, so like Sixteen Candles came out when okay. I was sixteen. That's not my was you know I so I was really into all of those. But Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh. I think I've seen <laughs> that movie probably like a million times. Yeah, my um, kids love it too. Yeah, they and I just there's something it. about like the the sort of fantasy part of it and like how it all works out in the end that mm. is so you know like he's literally on the verge of disaster and he he just like so cool, pulls it, it all yeah. off and <laughs> it's, it's like every teenager's dream right yeah. and um, I loved that movie so much and Me too. I watched yeah. it a lot. 
it's yeah, I mean it's kind of a perfect movie in yeah. some respect I mean I love Big as well I mean there's so many films yeah, from yeah, that yeah, yeah. generation that I saw as a kid but yeah good answer <laughs> um, so have you ever seen a bear um, n- no but when I was camping with my family once um, we are woke up and um, there was bears outside but none of us were af- <laughs> but you didn't see them <laughs> yeah it was dark okay right. so um, they were like t- taking getting into our trash and oh. stuff <laughs> so I've been in the presence of bears yeah. but I, okay. it was super dark because we're in the middle of nature in the middle of the night and so my dad was like the next morning you know did he play it cool and tell yes, you in the morning <laughs> yes 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 and we wow. knew not to get out of our tents we were told what's your wow. karaoke go to um. Oh man, I love karaoke too. This is so hard. Um. Probably something by Journey. Okay, amazing. Um, what's the famous Journey song? Do they do more than a Don't Stop Believing? Oh, oh yeah, Don't, Don't Stop, Stop Believing. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I'm a cheese ball that way. But again, I would grow up in the seventies. Yeah, I know it's true. Um. So you travel a lot for work. Which city do you find most inspiring? New York. I mean. I love traveling in Europe. I don't, I've only gone to Europe for work a couple of times. I've gone more for, for sort of like um, inspiration gathering and vacation, but I get to go to New York a lot for work, both for meetings and um, speaking engagements. And uh, um, New York to me is like, in the United States, it's like, you know, the most incredible place just in terms of generations of people who still exist in this very urban environment like san francisco is so young now like mm. all the old people have left and gone to the suburbs not all of them but you know um and new york is still like just such a true city and that you walk around and like there's old people and young people and like every ethnicity you can possibly imagine yeah, and it. like fashion and just craziness and so much access to art and design and books and all the things that I'm passionate about and food and I love New York. Yeah, it's a great place. Um, this is a, a new question. <laughs> um, have you seen The Last Man on Earth? We won't cut, cut this bit in. No. So in it, he is, uh, everyone, he wakes up, everyone's gone um, and he can get anything he wants. Um, so he's got this house in the suburbs with the swimming pool and stuff and he's got art from the Smithsonian and he's got the Declaration of Independence in his house. So I'll ask the question. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you could have anything, and it, you don't have to think about money, or you don't have to think about logistics or any of that, if you could have anything or any collection, what would you have? Um, we were talking about this before we started recording, but part of the reason I went to Santa Fe last week is to see the Alexander Girard retrospective. And um, I have been obsessed with his work for a really long time. And so I got to see, like, not just in the show, but um, I, so my friend Patrick has worked for Todd Oldham for years and Todd, um, and so Todd got us like, he's written a book about Gerard. So Mm -hmm. he like called the curator and was like, can my friends come in the back? And so we got to see like private collection of like all of Gerard's inspiration and letters between him and George O'Keefe. And, and it was all organized in this like crazy way. And, um, Patrick and I were both sort of like, <laughs> like having a moment of chills and tears and just seeing the sort of like original sketches and all of this inspiration. 
And um, I think as an artist, you know, like having some part of your, like, the collection of your, like, you know, I have things of his that are reproduced, but like just seeing all of his stuff in one place um, and his brilliance displayed in all these different ways, because he was also kind of like a polymath, like making things in all, every direction in art and design. And I would love to have, I don't know, what everything I saw in the museum <laughs> in my house, I guess. It's but to have that yeah. time with it, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. To really yeah, look yeah, at it and yeah. know that his hand was on the You know, every, I feel like every artist has an idea of what perfection looks like to them. Like if their work was perfect and, you know, um, you know, or what they aspire to do and make. And like, for me, that's what sort of like, he's one of the people I feel that way about. And so it's like, yeah, anything. I saw, we, Patrick and I kept talking about breaking the glass cases. So we were seeing at this museum and we actually got to touch some of his actual things when we were in the back. Wow. I was um, careful not to abscond with any of them. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the final question is, um, can art change the world? I think it is changing the world. Yeah, 100%. I think that most of the voices, you know, or many of the voices that you're that you're hearing right now that are forces for change um, or change for the good, because um, there's certainly a lot of people who are fighting to turn back the clock mm -hmm. in many ways, um, are creative people, not just artists, but writers and um, musicians. Um, and I think part of the reason is we have this vehicle to express ourselves in a way that people want to consume or want, you know, like, um, I feel so blessed every day that I have a platform, but I also, that I also have this way to share my ideas about change in the world through my art. And I have friends who have just as many ideas, but they don't have mm. that the platform or the artistic um, skill that I have and so they're sort of stuck in a way more to like what to do I think I still think there's ways that even you know every average person can contribute to change in the world but I do think there's something about art and music and dance and um and writing that um that is inspiring to to others in a way that um that ultimately will change the world yeah amazing thank you so much yeah, of thank course you. thanks for having show. me it's been incredible <laughs> Thanks to Tomino for the theme music, our families for supporting us on this journey, and most importantly, you, the listeners, for tuning in and following our ventures with no ideas. Follow us on Instagram and like and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a comment if you can, but only nice ones. Check out our website, noideaspodcast.co.uk for the extra bits to accompany the shows. We'll be back next month with more ideas. Bye.